Welcome to Cato Audio for May 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, culled from recent Cato Daily podcasts, Alex Narasta discusses noble lies of public officials in an emergency. Angela Erickson of the Pacific Legal Foundation discusses the states that have and notably have not liberated the expansion of healthcare capacity in this pandemic. Carrie McDonald discusses homeschooling in a world where every kid is at home. Will Reinhardt of the Center for Growth and Opportunity details missteps by the FDA when it comes to diagnostic testing. Will Yateman talks oversight of that massive multi-trillion dollar spending bill. And Eric Gomez evaluates China's earlier and later responses to this pandemic. But first, Joan Norbert describes the very different approach of his home of Sweden to this coronavirus outbreak. Sweden has taken a fairly dramatic approach to the coronavirus outbreak in that restrictions imposed by the government have been very limited, with social distancing the norm and large gatherings suspended. Cato's Joan Norberg, who lives in Sweden, says it's too early to tell for sure, but there are good reasons to believe that Sweden's approach may serve as a model. Sweden has uh, done exactly what uh, in response to this this global coronavirus outbreak? Well, nothing dramatic, and I guess that's that's what's dramatic about it, and that's why Sweden is the center of attention right now, because everybody else um, did some fairly aggressive things to get this thing under control. Lockdowns and shutdowns, uh, closing borders and um, having different sorts of um, stay-at-home or shelter-in-place orders. Sweden didn't do that. Unlike our neighbors, we did not stop the flights. We did not close the borders. No state of emergency, no stay-at-home orders. We have not shut down workplaces, schools, apart from high schools and universities. Um, Cinemas, restaurants, bars, gyms, libraries, shopping centers, public transportation, they are all functioning not as usual, but they are open. And as long as no more than 50 people gather at once, that is fine with the Swedish authorities. Okay, so with respect to uh, personal decisions, what has changed for the average Swede what has changed is that the there's been a, a government recommendation for social distancing uh, and to isolate those over 70. They shouldn't socialize at all. We are all recommended to work from home, if possible, and avoid long-distance travel. And I would say that most Swedes have abide by that. Uh, we have lots of uh, social distancing. The um, we haven't gone to our summer homes now during the Eastern holidays. When you look at location data, it seems like there's more than a 90% drop. Uh, so we Sweden is not as usual, but it's not the law. So we can use individual uh, knowledge and individual needs to decide on the margin if something is really important or not. Okay, so... Here's where it gets uh, interesting, is that uh, Sweden has not taken 
these dramatic steps like we've seen in the United States with shelter-in-place orders uh, and the closing of many businesses ordered by the government. Uh, the death toll, uh, this is from The Guardian, I believe, uh, quoting the Public Health Agency, announced uh, as of this recording, and we're recording this on a Wednesday, a death toll of 1,203 people. Uh, and that's a rate of 101 per million inhabitants. Now compare that to Denmark. It's, their rate is just 51. And in Finland, it is 11. So a, a lot of people would point to this number and say, Sweden uh, is not doing very well. The, the death toll has been much higher in Sweden than it has been in these other countries. Yes, there are a couple of things that we should keep in mind when we hear data points like that. One of them being that we do measure um, deaths in different ways, in different places. Uh, for example, in Sweden, we constantly check the list of people infected against the population registers. So anyone who dies and had the virus is counted as one death from the coronavirus. Whereas in many of our neighboring countries, you only count them as corona deaths if the doctor, if a doctor concludes that the virus killed someone and they then report it, it has to be a specific decision from the doctor to report it to the country's public health authority. So probably, according to other countries' public health authorities, they miss many deaths that Swedes count, uh, partly because Swedish authorities are a bit obsessed with surveying um, people. Many Countries don't even count deaths outside of hospitals uh, when they die at home or in nursing homes, things like that. Whereas in Sweden, 42% of the deaths in the Stockholm region are from nursing homes. That wouldn't even show up in the statistics in, in many countries. So that's important to keep in mind. But it's also the case that I think no matter how you adjust for that, Sweden has a higher uh, death rate per capita than not other European countries because we're somewhere in the middle. Uh, countries like Britain, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Southern Europe is, is much higher than Sweden. But compared to other Nordic countries, Sweden is, is higher. But that's because they've had a lockdown. They've kept people in their homes. So the question is, what is going to happen after they begin to open their societies up? And that's the whole Everything depends on that. And many researchers say that this is the critical uh, part of their, uh, their decision-making. Uh, they will probably see the same kind of deaths or uh, perhaps even a higher peak when they open society suddenly, whereas Sweden has managed to hopefully sort of had some sort of break on the... Um, on the contagion uh, within the society. The interesting question to ask is, did people die in Sweden that would not have had to die otherwise because we didn't shut everything up? It's not like we hear from some people, like Donald Trump, who claim that Swedes are suffering tremendously because of these decisions. It's not the case that our healthcare system was overwhelmed. People has not died because we had a lack of care or ventilators, still some 20% of intensive care units are unoccupied in Sweden. So we have managed to give treatment to those who needed it and those who died 
are people who would have died in any situation, no matter what the healthcare situation would have looked like. Yeah, that's the sort of the key question is it's one thing to say that uh, deaths in Sweden simply uh, are not being delayed in a way that they may well be delayed in uh, Finland or elsewhere. Um, but the, the question is, are there going to be more and what are the costs associated with um, just just engaging in that delay? Yeah, and that's why I would be cautious to say anything specific right now about which kind of model works better, because we just don't know. Uh, there are models like a, one of the Harvard models that point to the, the risk of trying to suppress the disease. If you suppress, according to the model, the um, COVID-19 by 60%, that will result in a higher peak later on when you begin to open up society again because nobody's immune. And then you would have a higher peak and a higher number of total cases, whereas just putting a break on it a little bit, trying to slow it down to a 40% rate or a 20% rate would result in a lower peak and in fewer cases in total. Uh, we don't know whether that's for that's the case or not. The models are what they are, and it depends on what we put into them. But that's what the um, Swedish authorities and the Swedish government uh, listen to. Johan Norberg is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Lies delivered with good motives are still lies. And when those lies come from people with expertise whose judgments we should trust, it harms the trustworthiness of experts. And of course, the consequences in a time of pandemic are life and death. Cato's Alex Narasta details what that might mean for the critical first few weeks of a growing viral outbreak. Shortly after it uh, became widely believed in the United States that this novel coronavirus that causes COVID-19 was going to be a, a substantial problem, face masks across the internet sold out. And the Surgeon General took to Twitter and uh, said, don't wear face masks. They're not that helpful. We need to reserve them for medical personnel. And since then, that advice has really fallen by the wayside. But there was almost three, four, almost four weeks when the official advice that that uh, Americans were getting from the government uh, was very different than what it is right now. That's right. They reversed their initial recommendation. Now they are saying you should wear a face mask. Uh, they're sort of saying you know wear a cloth face mask maybe like a bandana or something else that you make, uh, preserve the N95 masks, these other more serious medical masks for medical personnel, but do cover your face. It does help. And that's quite a reversal. Uh, Jerome Adams in February said, don't buy face masks. The CDC for several years has had a recommendation on their website to not buy face masks. And recently CDC officials have gone on to say not to, but the CDC reversed course as well and said, no, you should cover your face when uh, you're in public and walking around. It does reduce the transmission of COVID-19, makes it less likely 
that the virus uh, will spread to other people makes it less likely that you will get the virus. So it does help, but it's a, a tremendous reversal in a short period of time from a position that frankly seemed ridiculous to a lot of people. The notion that you shouldn't wear a mask, they don't help, to now one that does make a lot of sense. So it's about time that they sort of came around to what we all realized was the common sense approach. So it's hard to come to the conclusion that the CDC uh, was not aware of the benefits of face masks. Um, it's hard to believe that the U.S. Surgeon General would uh, offer advice that was not true uh, or at least uh, was, was bad advice. Do we have any evidence about whether or not this institution or this uh, high-ranking government official uh, knew that the advice that they were giving was not sound from a, a very practical individual level uh, way? Every time they said not to buy face masks, or virtually every time, it was combined with the justification that medical personnel needed them. And that if you buy them, then that's, if you buy a mask, that's one less mask that could be used by somebody working as a nurse or a doctor or seeing actual patients. So I think that there's a lot of, and there's a lot of evidence that um, they wanted to save these masks for medical personnel. And that seems to be the justification for, I'd say, greatly exaggerating the ineffectiveness of masks. Um, sort of a, a noble lie, I would say, is the uh, justification for a lot of these statements early on that tried to persuade people not to use them. So you use this term noble lie in a blog post at Cato.org. And since then, that term has sort of caught on with respect to uh, this bad advice that was initially given by the government. That's right. And I think the, the downside of this advice is, I mean, the obvious one is that people didn't wear masks uh, during a period of time when they should have. And as a result, there's probably more, there are more people who have caught the virus as a result of that. Um, but the other long-term consequence of this is that people are going to be a little less trusting of experts. And that's terrible because the experts in this case know a lot about this virus. They know how it spreads. They know about diseases. And the rest of us who are amateurs we need to be able to listen to them and trust the advice that they are giving us. And it just becomes so much harder to do that when we know that they have lied for noble reasons, but they have lied to us um, in the past about the effectiveness of masks. Alex Narasta directs immigration policy studies at the Cato Institute. Among the regulations that have been temporarily shed by states during this pandemic, so-called certificate of need laws. Especially in the realm of healthcare, certificate of need laws give already established businesses the opportunity to veto expansion by competitors or the entry of new competitors. Angela Erickson directs research at the Pacific Legal Foundation. We discussed which states have done more and less to remove bureaucratic roadblocks to emergency healthcare capacity. Thank you.
Well, so during a pandemic, what we want to have happen is healthcare capacity be flexible enough to expand as rapidly as it needs to. And there are laws in place in some states that make it impossible to even do that because they have to go through a bureaucratic process that often takes months or years in order to get up and running. Okay, so this is broadly speaking certificate of need laws. And of course, libertarians are uh, hammering uh, uh, over this issue quite a bit, you included. Um, so what do certificate of need laws, at least generally speaking, because these are state-based laws, what generally speaking do they require in order to expand some capacity in an industry? Yeah. So in healthcare, there are about 36 states that have these laws in place. And in order to, if you're a med- uh, healthcare provider or would-be healthcare provider, in order to start operating or expand in some way or to bring in new equipment, you have to go through a certificate of need process, which requires an application. You'll have to go to a hearing. At the hearing, this is sort of the big piece. The hearing, you'll have to prove that your services or additional beds or additional equipment are needed, right? And so at this hearing, what happens is the other people who are already in place, the other healthcare providers, hospitals, clinics, come in and say, no, there isn't a need for this additional facility or additional expansion because we have it covered. And so this type of process can then be appealed and it can go on. It can take months or even years to try to prove that there's a need. And you have to sort of go through all those steps in order to then do that. And so when we're in a pandemic, things are shifting every day, right? So every day there's, it's ex- the need is expanding. And we can't wait for that process in order to expand our healthcare capacity. So there are, as you said, what, 30 plus states that have these laws on the books? Uh, what have What have some of these states done? Which states have done them? Uh, and and what do you anticipate will be the impact uh, during this pandemic of clearing away that uh, regulatory hurdle? Yeah, so some states have already, some governors and health departments have already noted that this is a big hurdle to being able to expand their healthcare capacity at this moment. And so 15 states at least have done away with it to some extent. It, it sort of fluctuates. Uh, in New York, for example, there is essentially suspended the Certificate of Need program for hospitals, which has allowed them to expand bed capacity as as much as they have, right? So that's what allows them to have that field hospital in Central Park. So there are several states that have done that. There are other states that have put into place emergency Certificate of Need processes. So there are about three or four that have that. Uh, an example is Maryland, which has allowed uh, several hospitals to apply and um, get quick emergency approval for 340 additional beds in the area. All right, so this quick expansion. But it's only 15 of the 36 states that have these types of rules that have done this. And even then, it's sort of limited in what can expand. In your estimation, based on what you've read, and I know a lot of this is still sort of fluid, and a lot of the terms thrown around are pretty fuzzy with respect to what it means to relax these laws during at this difficult time. Um, but what state or handful of states have done the most in terms of expanding healthcare capacity uh, to deal with COVID-19? 
Yeah, so states that have where um, the rules have changed and we've seen the most growth happen uh, include New York. We've seen this in Maryland, in Michigan. They're sort of just beginning to do this in other states like Nebraska and Alabama. Um, so we'll begin to see sort of whether or not those changes will have an effect as as those states begin to come become slammed. So in, in New York, you mentioned that, uh, and I saw a picture that Tom Keene of uh, Bloomberg posted uh, online uh, overlooking Central Park. And uh, the photo he posted was essentially setting up tents in, in Central Park. You're saying that that the certificate of need law on the books now suspended or relaxed in New York would not have allowed for that field hospital to be set up in under normal circumstances? Yeah. So in New York, in order to uh, have additional acute beds, hospital beds, which is what those are in the field hospital, you have to go through this certificate of need process. Um, and so with that process in place, it would have been impossible for them to quickly set up that space as quickly as they did. So what states have done nothing? So states that have done nothing include Kentucky, uh, New Jersey, which is surprising considering it's right there in what's going on, Rhode Island, West Virginia, uh, Massachusetts even. These are states that have these restrictions on acute hospital beds, so they're not even able to expand the space to put people. So current providers cannot expand their hospital beds? Yeah. So typically, and I have to look at each state's laws, but typically um, in order to add additional hospital beds, you have a certain number you're given. And in order to add additional beds, you have to go through the whole process, even if you're already a healthcare established healthcare provider in the area. Have states that, that haven't done anything, that haven't relaxed these requirements, have any of them said why they're not doing that? There is a lot of noise out there. I haven't seen anything uh, addressing certificate of need in these other states. There's there's lots of other things that they're trying to address right now. It may be too early to say uh, whether or not any of these changes to these rules are going to have a measurable impact. But after all the dust has settled, do you think that there will be at least relevant research questions for during this pandemic, whether or not states with and without certificate of need laws on the books for healthcare will have performed relatively better or worse? Yeah, I think the big question that I have is the type of flexibility flexibility that healthcare providers have in this moment and looking at that between states that have certificate of need and don't and states that have suspended it in some way and thinking about um, how um, how they're able to mobilize to expand or contract capacity as needed. Uh, a really sort of interesting research that has already been done suggests uh, that there could be a lot of negative outcomes of not suspending CON. One study done um, at Mercatus showed that there were increased risks of mortality from pneumonia, for example, in certificate of need states. And that's pneumonia is one of the potential uh, consequences of COVID-19. The other aspect of this, and and you and I, we live in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, full disclosure, Angela Erickson is my wife. Um, but the, uh, you know, we're really concerned about having to go to the hospital for anything else. So I imagine that as this um, illness hits a peak, um, 
the hospital beds will be absolutely reserved for this and almost nothing else. Yeah. And so when you're thinking about healthcare capacity, right, a lot of these states has, have suspended it for beds, acute care beds. They've suspended it for sort of other reasons that are related to COVID, but it's it really the whole healthcare system works holistically. And so if you can get, for example, pregnant women out of hospitals into birthing centers, um, you're really helping those people and you're helping the healthcare providers so that they can focus in the hospitals on the people who really um, need them there at that moment. Um, and so thinking about it in that more holistic way really allows you to be like, to realize that some people can be pulled into different places that will still need care during this time. Angela Erickson directs strategic research at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Parents and school systems alike were caught flat-footed with respect to schooling during a pandemic. I spoke with Cato adjunct scholar Carrie McDonald about homeschooling's origins and what learning outside a conventional classroom might look like when normalcy returns. We're seeing a lot of parents increasingly curious about what real homeschooling looks like. Uh, of course, we've said all along, this is not real homeschooling. Uh, this is a situation that all of us are finding very stressful and difficult. But it is um, prompting some parents who may have been intrigued by the idea of homeschooling to uh, look for some more resources. So I'm seeing many conventional uh, school parents joining Facebook groups for homeschoolers uh, and seeing increased interest in what real homeschooling might look like. In fact, I ran into a neighbor recently whose 10-year-old child is in a conventional public school and, you know, at a safe six-foot distance was asking her how things were going at home. Uh, and she said that her child is just blooming, just devouring books, uh, writing short stories, really taking charge of her education and is so much happier. And so I said, oh, I wonder, you know, would you think about continuing with this uh, after the pandemic ends. And she said, we are strongly considering it. She said, I'm so surprised it's going so well. So I think to the extent that parents can disconnect from curriculum assignments in a lot of states, they're being absolved from uh, curriculum uh, requirements, that they can start to see how their children's natural curiosity and passion for learning can reemerge. And they'll be able to learn so much over these coming weeks. Where did we get homeschooling? Of course, that seems like kind of an odd question because there was a time when there weren't schools. Um, but at least in this country in the last four or five decades, where did that idea come from? So the modern homeschooling movement really originated from the countercultural left in the late 60s and early 1970s, families living on communes and refusing to send their children to school, um, was really where modern homeschooling emerged. Uh, John Holt was one of the early pioneers of the homeschooling, modern homeschooling movement, creating the first newsletter for homeschooling families in 1977 called Growing Without Schooling. And it was there that he coined the term unschooling, which he defined as taking children out of school. And of course, this was a time when compulsory attendance laws in many cases 
um, prevented parents from homeschooling or the rules were fuzzy. And so it wasn't clear what kind of parental authority existed to allow families to homeschool. Uh, the religious right began to become really interested in this idea of homeschooling as well. And that's where the numbers began to swell in terms of homeschooling throughout the 1980s, really driven uh, by conservatives who wanted to educate their children at home. Homeschooling became legally recognized in all 50 states by 1993. In 1999, it was the first year that the federal government began tracking numbers of homeschoolers, counting 850,000. And now we're at uh, close to 2 million, roughly 1.7 million uh, homeschoolers in this country, although state-level data suggests that the federal data is wildly underreported. Um, states show you know, increasing numbers of homeschooling. So there are some estimates that homeschooling really could be around two and a half million students nationwide. And with the growth in its numbers has come a tremendous growth in terms of the diversity of the homeschooling population. So now we see homeschoolers um, geographically, demographically, and ideologically diverse, that it's no longer just um, you know, kind of religious homeschoolers driving the process. Much of the growth, for example, right now in the modern homeschooling movement is urban secular parents who are frustrated by standardized testing and a one-size-fits-all mass schooling model. So uh, that is happening. We're seeing um, much more racial diversity. There's about 8% of homeschoolers are African-American, 25% uh, Hispanic, which is on par with the K-12 school age population. Uh, so a lot of growth in terms of diversity. And the number one motivator uh, for homeschooling parents, why they're choosing to homeschool, according to federal data, is concern about the environment of other schools, including peer pressure, bullying, substance abuse, and so on. Socioeconomic status would seem to uh, make homeschooling either a very distinct possibility or not really a very likely possibility. The ability to have a, a parent at home is, is pretty key for uh, homeschooling. Um, so going forward, what might that look like? Let's assume that uh, the, the ranks of homeschoolers swell uh, nationwide uh, because of this pandemic that we're experiencing right now. What might homeschooling look like in five, 10 years? Well, over the past decade, along with its diversity in other areas, homeschooling has become much more socioeconomically diverse, more two working parents choosing homeschooling, more single parents choosing homeschooling. Um, in many ways, homeschooling can become the legal lever to put parents back in charge of their child's education and allow for that freedom and flexibility and experimentation that simply doesn't exist uh, in conventional schools, either public or private, when they're tied to state compulsory schooling statutes. So homeschooling is really an opportunity for a lot of ed education innovation. And we're already seeing that uh, in terms of hybrid homeschooling programs emerging where young people might attend a building or a learning center a couple of days a week, and then the remain, remainder of that time is spent at home or out in their community taking classes and so on. For example, there's a public charter school in California called the Da Vinci Charter School Network that operates on this hybrid uh, homeschooling model where 
kids to go to a building two days a week and learn from teachers in that building. And then the rest of the time they're at home. So that's an, an instance where it is free to the parent in terms of accessing this other type of learning model. Um, we're also seeing low cost private microschool networks emerge. Um, the Prenda microschool network, for example, in Arizona is also a low cost private school model. Um, that off also takes advantage of Arizona's robust education choice mechanisms to defray costs for families that want it. And that network is growing exponentially. And I think, you know, we'll see more a demand from, fa- from families after this pandemic for more education choice and variety of education options. I think there'll be a higher demand for tax credit scholarship programs and education savings accounts that separate education from schooling and allow families to use some of that public money uh, towards tutors or community classes or books and resources uh, so that it's not just thinking about schooling and tuition the way voucher programs do, but that it's allowing for a much broader, expanded definition of education that we're all getting a glimpse of as we're all learning without conventional schooling right now. Carrie McDonald is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. The FDA's missteps during this pandemic have been many. And one particularly pernicious outcome has been this. When medical facilities develop diagnostic testing, regulatory scrutiny is never higher than during an outbreak. At the precise moment when speed matters, the agency seems to put its regulatory foot down more often. Will Reinhardt is with the Center for Growth and Opportunity. We discussed FDA and diagnostic testing. Assume for the moment that we were not in a pandemic. What is the role of private labs, of hospitals, of uh, you know universities and other medical facilities when it comes to trying to develop diagnostic tests for some illness? So in a non-pandemic setting, there's actually a lot of flexibility traditionally that's been given to healthcare practitioners at the local level working in labs and hospitals. But weirdly enough, when a pandemic does occur, everything actually becomes far more difficult. The The regulatory system changes slightly, but that's actually really critical and, and everything just becomes far more difficult for practitioners. All right. So we are in a pandemic. Yeah. What makes that change occur? Why uh, would hospitals or other medical facilities be less likely to develop Uh, diagnostic tests in a setting when it appears, at least to my uneducated brain, that we need that more than ever. Yeah, the FDA, when it comes to diagnostic tests, has really taken a hands-off approach for a number of years. But the last time that they really did seem to go after companies was actually during the Zika crisis in 2016. So in at least normal times, the FDA typically doesn't have very much oversight of these diagnostic tests. But as as was the case in 2016, when we had this crisis occur, the FDA actually sent out letters to a number of hospitals in Texas and labs in Texas as well, and basically told them that they needed to get in line. And so today, and especially we've seen this in Washington State and New York State, that at the moment at which these practitioners needed more flexibility, 
the regulatory system became all that more complex. I know the FDA has a strong focus on, you know, efficacy and safety. And these are the things that drive a lot of uh, the regulatory approach that uh, FDA has. Is there any rationale that's been offered by the agency for why the situation, if not as a regulatory matter, as a practical matter, changes when, again, to my mind, uh, we want to have this distributed knowledge being brought to bear on this problem that affects everyone. Some very sharp and astute commenters in this space, Scott Gottlieb being probably one of the best examples and the most vocal examples, has brought up some of these issues. But when it actually comes to regulation of these diagnostic tests, these kinds of concerns have long existed within the community. And, you know, healthcare leaders have long known that there's been problems in in diagnostic testing. Congress has been trying to take up, up this issue. There's actually the Valid Act currently in Congress that's that's trying to solve some of these problems. But really, this kind of comes back to a, a consistent issue we see with regulatory agencies that Congress never really gave the FDA clear regulatory approval and regulatory authority over the space of diagnostic testing. And so the agency instead has just kind of taken that authority. But in doing that and in, in kind of assuming that authority, it makes the regime itself quite complex because it has gone back and forth in different regimes. And it's just a kind of a it's a it's a confused mess when it comes to the regime. So if, if I understand you correctly, it's not clear what authority FDA has. And uh, they have, in a sense, seized authority to regulate these things, but they only seem to do so when the stakes of uh, stakes of it for individual uh, medical facilities are are quite high. That is, we want this information to get out there. We want the knowledge to be brought to bear to these problems. And the FDA uses, I mean, do they use emergencies in order to exert authority? Or it, what? why would they do this? It's somewhat unclear why the FDA is only really getting involved in regulation of diagnostic tests during the most critical and, and you know, the most critical points, you know, during a pandemic, for example. But it seems that they, they seem to be concerned about potentially companies making money off of these diagnostic tests in pandemics. And in many instances, the agency has said that they are trying to trample some of these, uh, you know, some of these money-making schemes. But that obviously leads to a very difficult situation for practitioners who need flexibility and at least in, in normal times kind of assume that that sort of flexibility in, in, in testing and diagnostic testing. What this means, practically speaking, is that the FDA probably is going to need some sort of reform to, under, to, to reconceptualize really how they're dealing with laboratory diagnostic testing. And this is something that has really been you know, slated for action for quite some time since since at least 2017. So it's not as though this problem isn't unknown. It's just that Congress really hasn't dealt with it in a very meaningful way. Will Reinhardt is a senior fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity.
The federal government isn't done with big spending during this pandemic, but one bright spot amid that multi-trillion dollar spending bill passed in late March is the oversight that was built in. Cato's Will Yateman walks through the requirements for all that spending. What Congress passed to spend this $2 trillion, which is, you know, it's hard to overstate what a huge amount of money uh, this was, uh, especially when you consider that the the federal government spends about $4 trillion a year in a year. Uh, so what was built in uh, to this legislation with respect to oversight? A great deal, actually. And this is something that the House majority, and that is to say the Democrats in the House and Democratic leadership in particular, Nancy Pelosi, um, that they fought for. And they're to be commended for this. Um, oversight is never so important as during times of stimulus. I mean, the whole idea behind a stimulus is to rush as much money out the door as fast as possible. Um, that presents two distinct dangers. The first is haste makes waste, as the old adage goes. I mean, and, and, you know, we sort of learned this from the last stimulus about a decade ago in the wake of the financial crisis. Um, and the, the second potential problem is that of politics. Um, if this stimulus is a black box administered by the Trump administration, who's to say that they wouldn't do something like uh, uh, disproportionately invest these stimulus resources or not invest, but give them away um, to people in swing states and thereby make a, a bolster their political prospects for the upcoming the Trump administrations for the upcoming election. So. Coterminous with stimulus is this urgent need for oversight, and Dems fought for this, and and they actually they fought for three layers of oversight in this bill, and and in particular, what they focused on was the five hundred and fifty odd billion dollars that are going to be uh, in loan guarantees to big business, uh, but also three hundred and fifty billion dollars worth of loans administered. Um, or given by private parties, but administered by the Small Business Administration. Um, so we're talking, you know, about a trillion dollars of public money here. And, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, so what they did is, again, these three layers. And two of them were housed in the executive branch. So here there was a council, sort of an oversight council um, for how these monies are spent. Uh, there was also a, sec a special inspector general, sort of an all-purpose investigator um, in the Treasury Department in particular. So these were the two executive branch measures. Um, and there was a third, uh, which was a congressional oversight committee comprised of, of, of members chosen um, on a bipartisan basis and, and with an independent staff and resources um, potentially to, to investigate, to oversee this spending. So what happens? We've got these three layers. Trump signs the law um, and, you know, into enactment um, to much fanfare. Uh, shortly thereafter, a couple hours later, the Trump administration issues a so-called signing statement. And, and this is this outrageous process, this uh, constitutional abomination, um, in my humble opinion, whereby, uh, uh, you know, we've all seen the commercial how a bill becomes a law. 
you know, a bill survives Congress. It gets to the president's desk. He signs it. But then thereafter, he says, my signature, notwithstanding the fact that I just my signature is a part of this constitutional process that makes this bill into a law. um, Nevertheless, I'm not going to respect I'm not going to implement or abide certain provisions of the law with which I disagree. These so-called signing statements. So Trump signs the CARES Act, and that's an acronym. I mean, I can't tell you exactly what the letters mean. I know the first one's coronavirus, um, but he, he signs the CARES Act. And then shortly thereafter says, hey, these two oversight provisions that were housed in the executive branch for this stimulus, I'm not going to abide those. Um, in particular, he objected to the extent to which Congress could consult in the, uh, the, uh, the appointment of a director for this uh, council and the extent to which the uh, Treasury Department Inspector General could tell Congress that the Trump administration wasn't playing ball, that they weren't giving up the necessary information to allow for oversight. Um, so Trump says, hey, these two layers, I'm not going to do them. And, and I personally, I find that outrageous. I think all these, uh, any signing statement is, um, uh, again, a constitutional abomination. But this one, given the context, given the importance of oversight in the stimulus context, um, I think it's, it's, it's pretty outrageous. Which brings me to the point of an op-ed that I wrote, I guess it was published last Friday for the New York Daily News. Um, in, in which I note, I lay out sort of this history, but also point to what Congress can do about it. Um, and, and in particular, they ought to beef up this third layer, this Congressional Oversight Committee. They ought to generously fund its staff. They ought to use this mechanism known as detail, um, by which they force executive branch employees to come work for Congress. Um, but they ought to go all out. Uh, they ought not take the president's signing statement uh, sitting down, if you will. It, it really is outrageous. I mean, co- Congress has a, you know, the president executes the law, but the Congress has a plenary, sort of unbound almost power to investigate how these monies are spent. I mean, you know, Congress is the one who, who passed the law that spends these money, these monies. Congress is the one that passed the law that creates the agencies uh, that spends these monies. I mean, the, the, there's no sort of constitutional case at all, really. Um, to deny Congress uh, 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 a role um, in this oversight process of, of the stewardship of these public funds. So I'm all for it. My, my only fear would be, um, you know, one that it sort of applies to all contemporary current events, uh, which is to say that the, the leadership in the House um, is perhaps more interested in, in scoring political points than it is in true oversight. I mean, and I would, I'll say this, true oversight leads to legitimate political points. I mean, if, if you do your, your homework and, and do a good job with the oversight, then, you know, potentially you uncover all sorts of shenanigans that, that make for great campaign commercials. Um, that truth notwithstanding, sometimes politicians are given to the, perhaps uh, the easier way out, if you will. Um, I just hope it doesn't become I hope they take this commission seriously. In a perfect world, it would be bipartisan. I mean, this is something that would engender support across both aisles. So that the president effectively slapped, constitutionally slapped Congress in the face with his signing statement. Um, so I, I, in this op-ed in the New York Daily News, I just lay out the case and, and for Congress to take this oversight um, commission within Article One within the legislature seriously to fund it well. Um, and to uh, be a, a proper steward of, of these public monies. Presidents have used these signing statements for at least the last 18, 19 years. Um, do they have, do they hold up at all? Are they used when these kinds of things are challenged? 
It depends. I mean, you hit the operative concept with that last bit, uh, when they're challenged. Uh, The problem is this is a prototypical, um, what is known as a quote-unquote political question. And that is a fancy term in constitutional law for uh, the sorts of controversies that courts refuse to take on because it is best left to the political branches. Um, which is to uh, say it is best left to the voters, um, uh, ultimately, you know, who would take a side in, in such a, a controversy between the elected branches, between Congress and the president. Uh, l- long story short, it, it's a tough question to answer because there's rarely a way to tell. These are uh, what is known as non-justiciable controversies generally because, again, they're, they're, uh, they fall under this doctrine, this rubric of so-called political questions. And then courts are reluctant to weigh in on these sorts of questions, these sorts of uh, constitutional controversies um, between the political branches. But basically, when a controversy involves the constitutional functions of the elected branches of government, so here the constitutional function is Congress passes the law, both chambers of Congress um, and then the president's constitutional function is, you know, he's got to sign or veto the law. Um, when it's that sort of controversy at play, courts don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. They rely on this, this doctrine um, of, of judicial restraint, this political questions doctrine. So uh, that is an unsatisfying answer for um, ultimately these controversies in our system tend to be decided by voters at the polls at the subsequent congressional or presidential election. Will Yateman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. China's initial response to the coronavirus outbreak that later spread across the globe was, to put it mildly, lackluster. And China's official victory lap after having apparently stopped the spread within its own borders only added to the tensions with other countries. Cato's Eric Gomez offered his thoughts. How do you evaluate China's initial response to uh, this coronavirus outbreak? They definitely did several things that I think made the outbreak worse, um, notably censorship of medical authorities in Wuhan, the city where the virus originated from. Um, And it's difficult to tell at the moment if this censorship was a situation where people in Beijing were saying, don't let this get out, or if it was a situation where local officials were panicking about a potential outbreak, but they didn't know how bad it was going to get. And then they tried to clamp things down and keep it controlled. Um, but in any case, that kind of information control or information, uh, lack of it getting out helped, I think, encourage this, uh, pandemic to spread beyond China. And as, uh, a lot of people aren't really very trustful of China's more recent numbers, that is, uh, having days where there were essentially no new cases that the, the Chinese government announced all that aside, it seemed as if the uh, government uh, took a bit of a victory lap as this virus was spanning the globe. That's right. Um, They said that they had 
successfully dealt with it. Um, and that, you know, as you said, reporting that their numbers were low when in actuality, uh, they probably weren't. Um, it is, I think it is important to note that as the virus was starting to gain traction in China, the Chinese government didn't quite try to hide it internally in terms of how Xi Jinping and other senior leaders talked about it. They clearly acknowledged that it was a problem and that they were implementing lockdowns of whole cities and other pretty restrictive movement uh, controls in order to contain it. Um, And now it's switched to this victory lap stage where uh, the propaganda organs are talking about, you know, hey, we have the model, we have the success story, let's do things. But like you said, because of the censorship at the initial stage, now there's a lot of uncertainty and lack of trust about their success story. Um, And then to further add to this, uh, a spokesman for the foreign ministry um, named Zhao Lijian a few weeks ago had a tweet where he basically accused the U.S. government and the U.S. military of maybe releasing this virus in China to try and deflect criticism towards the United States, which is just makes life so, so difficult for um, the U.S. and China at a time when we really need to come together to figure out what cooperative practices both countries can contribute to fighting this pandemic. China, by doing the victory lap and trying to deflect blame back onto the United States, makes that really, really hard for us to do and will, I think, hinder uh, the global response to try to control this. China's response since then uh, has been to send a lot of aid to uh, countries that are being ravaged uh, far worse uh, than the United States has been, at least thus far. Uh, Part of that is probably driven by the bad PR of their earlier victory lap. But in terms of uh, coordinating with other countries and trying to make sure that supplies are moving quickly, that at least to my mind, seems like uh, an extremely appropriate thing for the Chinese government to be doing right now. I think you're right on that in terms of China trying to help out. I think that's a very positive thing. However, there's been a lot of questions raised in Europe, especially by the recipients of this aid who say that the testing kits aren't as working as well as they thought they were going to. And some of the equipment that has been sent out has had other deficiencies. So this is another example where there's a lot of worry among certain U.S. China watching circles that, oh, they're going to use their response to the coronavirus as evidence of, you know, we have the right way to lead the world. We're going to try and assert ourselves more on the world stage as a provider of public goods. But then the goods they provide aren't that high quality. Um, So there's it just seems like there is a whole litany of things that china is doing in its response to the coronavirus that are just creating longer term problems for itself in terms of uh messing with its image uh and making it seem like that even when they try to do things helpful they're doing it in a very somewhat clumsy way you've said before uh not on this podcast but you've said elsewhere that president xi is bad at foreign policy Yes. Uh, what does that mean? Well, and this goes back to COVID, um, but it, it's it's broader than that. I think Xi Jinping's tenure has been classified by a lot of missteps on China's part um, in terms of most of what they've done in Asia has tried, has been encouraging to help other countries 
get closer to the United States rather than them. In terms of their Belt and Road Initiative and their investments um, around the world, many of them are having trouble turning economic profit. And also many of them, not recently, but about six months to a year ago, started getting a lot of domestic pushback in the countries where the investments were made because of unfair uh, terms of agreements. And now we're seeing that in COVID-19 in terms of China trying to say, you know, we did it, we have the best model, we're good, and then having defective equipment shipped out and a campaign of trying to first uh, censor information that helped uh, probably encourage the outbreak to, to get as bad as it did. And then after they've gotten a handle on it, and I their numbers aren't to be believed, but I do think that they have a good enough handle on it domestically um, where their economy is going to start returning to normal soon. But they, between the, the early censorship and now this weird victory lap and trying to deflect blame onto the United States, it's, it's just hard to see them having much attractiveness on the international stage. And that's what I mean when Xi Jinping is bad at foreign policy. He's good at these sort of you know, military buildups, exercises, that kind of stuff. Um, not good at trying to use those more soft touch influence uh, type things to get people onto China's side. And I will say, in all fairness, the U.S. has also been bad at this too under the Trump administration. Uh, Trump has done a lot of things to alienate U.S. friends. He doesn't really value multilateral cooperation that much, either on uh, COVID-19 response or other foreign policy issues. And so just because Xi Jinping is bad at foreign policy doesn't mean uh, that America is doing much better right now, unfortunately. Eric Gomez is the Director of Defense Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. In early March, as fears of the coronavirus spread across the U.S., infectious disease experts in Seattle developed a new way to test for the virus. That test was denied widespread use because it hadn't gone through typical regulatory channels. The regulation prevented a rapid response to a public health emergency. The Cato Institute has just published Evasive Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance. In the book, Adam Thierer explores why innovators of all stripes, from home-sharing and ride-sharing innovators to medical researchers, are increasingly using new technological capabilities to pressure policymakers to reform laws and regulations that are outmoded, inefficient, or counterproductive. Evasive Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance is available now at online retailers and at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.